0: May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. Ten Commandments, they don't have near the profile they did even 50 years ago, when they were as likely to be on display in a public school classroom or in a courthouse as on the Sunday school wall. If you've ever taken a walk behind the pavilion in Kildonan Park, sort of up behind the duck pond, you might have been surprised to stumble upon a large monument engraved with the Ten Commandments sitting there in Kildonan Park. There's another rather more imposing one in Assiniboine Park in the formal gardens which was presented to the city as a gift in 1965 by the Fraternal Order of Eagles and their ladies' auxiliary, it's hard to imagine anyone, much less the Fraternal Order of Eagles, offering to make a gift of a Ten Commandments monument today. It's not so hard to imagine the head-scratching that would go on in City Hall when the offer of the gift arrived. Whatever are we going to do with that? Early in my ordained ministry, when I was working as an assistant priest at St. Paul's Church in Fort Gary, I got a phone call. It was a youngish couple, lived in the neighborhood. They were asking about baptism for their baby. I arranged to go over to the house to meet with them, and over a cup of coffee, we had the sort of the typical get-to-know-you chat, because when I arrived at the door, I realized I did not know them. The man, the dad of this newborn, had grown up in Fort Gary. He'd even been raised as a child and a youth at St. Paul's Church, but then had kind of drifted away Though when the time came to begin a family, he and his wife had moved back to Fort Gary, quite close to where his mother still lived, the house he'd grown up in, in fact. He was a lawyer. He ran a little neighborhood practice within walking distance of their home. They seemed really good, solid folks of the sort who would root themselves in a neighborhood like that and be really good neighbors, I liked them instantly. We began to talk about baptism and about what it means for parents to bring an infant for baptism to the church. And I could see this slightly cautious look coming across his face. We're not really churchgoers ourselves, he told me. Adding that this was really important to his mother, though, the baby's grandmother, whose wishes they really wanted to honor. And Grandma did, in fact, come to church quite a lot. Yes, they'd come to church with Grandma on Christmas and maybe Easter. But more importantly, he told me, they were going to live according to the moral teachings of the Bible particularly the Ten Commandments. And he clearly hoped that would be sufficient. Well, the Old Testament scholar Terence Fretheim notes that once you've taken seriously the introductory words to the commandments, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, Out of the house of slavery, I am the Lord your God. It should become clear that they are not a law code meant to float free of their narrative context. This opening word of God, Fretheim continues, keeps the commandments personally oriented. I am the Lord your God. Obedience to the commandments is relationally conceived. The Ten Commandments are a gracious word of God, and they begin with a word of good news about what God has done on behalf of you as a member of the community of faith. Put another way, these commandments were never offered as timeless, free-floating moral rules Suitable for engraving on monuments in city parks, or for demonstrating your eligibility for having your baby baptized. As presented here in Exodus 20, and then again in a slightly modified form in Deuteronomy 5, these commandments say some critical things about the shape of life as it's lived in covenant relationship with God. You are God's people, and this is what it's going to look like. That's their force. Besides, it it actually takes a while for the list of commandments to get close to what might be thought of as kind of moral codes for behavior. The first three commandments... You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God. Those three aren't about ethics or morals at all. They're theology. The mandate to have no other gods before me was uttered into a world filled with other gods. Egyptian gods and Canaanite gods and local gods and kitchen gods. Gods you could take on the road with you to keep you safe. People had a veritable smorgasbord of religious options before them. But here this God of the covenant says, no more. From there the commandments flow to the, to the one against idols or graven images. See, all of those other religious options came with statues and figures, carvings, but you're not to be about that anymore. Further, you can't make a carving or a sculpture of this God, for this God will not be turned into a commodity You can't carry this God into battle with you as a sign of power, nor can you pour oil over it or offer food to it or splatter blood on it, because this God isn't an it. This is a relational God. You're also not to make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, as our translation puts it, Rendered in the King James as thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. I think modern people have often assumed this means little more than you're not supposed to use words like God and Christ as swear words. But it's much more than that. You're not to invoke this name as if it was a source of power for you. You're not to throw this name like a weapon, cheapen it, or use it as a kind of leverage. God's name will not be used like that. After those three, the next one is pure gift. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. In Egypt, the economy had driven all, everything, there's no rest from labor. It works seven days a week. There's no break from the demands of the marketplace. It's open seven days a week. But now you, along with your son or daughter, male or female slave, livestock, or even the alien resident in your land, so the outsider, all of you will know a different rhythm. And you'll know this different rhythm that builds in this cycle of rest because the Lord God rested the seventh day and wants you to have that same privilege, that same gift. And it is gift indeed. And then things begin to turn to the territory that I think that young lawyer had in mind when he was talking about morals. Honor your father and your mother. I suspect every young lawyer wants his newborn baby to look honorably up at dad, you know? It's not a tough thing to do to honor your mother and father if your parents have acted honorably. Mine have. I honor them freely. Not so easy, though, for people whose parents were abusive or neglectful or had all kinds of other complexities that made life growing up really not good. But then again, the force of this commandment may be something closer to something that Cornell West said in a recent lecture given at the Trinity Institute in New York City. Self-made men, self-made women. What a lie, what a lie. As if we gave birth to ourselves. In other words... Honor the fact that you're not self-made, you're not self-created, you you can't come from nothing in that way. Honor that reality. Honor the fact that while God may be the source of all of life, your parents had a very particular role to play in it too. Don't forget that. So locate yourself in a lineage bigger than just your own life. Then come the series of commandments that Walter Brueggemann calls Rules of Neighborliness. You shall not murder, shall not commit adultery, or steal, or bear false witness, so don't lie against your neighbor. These commandments are the boundaries of the terms for very basic, very basic neighborliness. And then that gets ramped up even further in the final commandment, You shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor." Really? I mean, I have to confess, several times over the past month, I have found myself coveting the spot that Mike Boyce was inhabiting during his sabbatical time at the Collegeville Institute at St. John's Abbey in Minnesota. Coveting it openly, freely. I'd had a January holiday. I had no excuse. But there I was in February, coveting where Mike was. And it was me who'd introduced him to Collegeville in the first place. What did I expect? But no, you shall not covet that which is your neighbor's. Because covetous envy can actually destroy relationships, friendships, neighborhoods, So rather than coveting what Mike was experiencing, I had to shift gears to a posture of delighting on his behalf for that opportunity to be in a place that I know and I love. Mike, we need to go for coffee because I need to hear the stories, and I am delighted. The envy's gone, really. Incidentally, the list of your neighbor's belongings that you're not to covet actually includes your neighbor's wife. That's in the list of property. By the time these commandments are recapitulated or retold in Deuteronomy 5, the wife is actually no longer listed as property. The commandment, neither shall you covet your neighbor's wife, is there, but it stands on its own. She stands on her own, not as part of the man's personal inventory of stuff. And truth be told, we also know that it isn't just men who covet others' property or others' partners. So, this is an equal opportunity commandment. Do you hear, though, how this is really taken together? These commandments are really about not commodifying God and not reducing neighbor to anything less than neighbor. How so much of this is allowing God to be God and neighbor to be neighbor, with both approached from a posture of foundational respect, honor, and love. You can see how a community that embraced these things, this sort of ten words, as the Hebrew calls them, how, how a community that embraced these ten words as its starting point, might have a fighting chance of becoming both whole and holy. Now think for just a minute about the scene from tonight's gospel reading, in which Jesus chases money changers and merchants from the temple. In John's telling, what is it that Jesus says as he chases them out? Take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. You're making money off of people's need to buy these animals to offer in sacrifice. And you're making money off of their need to exchange their Roman coins for Jewish shekels in order to make their tithe. You're making money off of your neighbors, in other words, and you're doing it in the very place which has been set aside for them to come and see and know that God is God. You have turned their religious practice to your own gain, and in doing so, you have commodified both God and neighbor. Get out. These ancient covenant commandments still do place claims on us, not though as rigid rules, and certainly not as guidelines for a generally moral life. They still call us to let God be God, not commodified, not domesticated, not wielded for our own gain, and to see neighbor as neighbor. That person across the aisle or sitting five rows behind you, the one you've not met or talked to even though you've seen them here from time to time, that person's your neighbor. Receive them like that. Respect them like that learn to love them like that, and then begin to discover what it is to be part of a whole and holy community. The 11th chapter of Deuteronomy, the people are instructed to, quote, put these words of mine in your heart and soul. Which makes a whole lot more sense than putting them on a stone monument in a city park. On a stone monument... The 10 words gather moss. Spiritually written on your soul and wrestled with and used as a way to kind of say something to us about us. Spiritually written on us like that. They can still do their deep and transformative work, but we got to wrestle with them. May they work their work on us this Lent. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.